0: Grace you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 2 is our sermon text this morning as we continue studies in the book of Acts. Let's pray together.
1: Almighty God our Father,
0: we pray for your Spirit. Descend Holy Spirit. Fill us, clothe us, equip us, inspire us, inflame us. So that we would be your people. So that we would be the body of the incarnate son in the world. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. In the life of Jesus and in the early history of the church, the spirit is everywhere doing Everything. The Spirit begins to stir even before Jesus is born. When Gabriel meets with Zacharias in the temple, Gabriel tells Zacharias that his son, John, will be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. When John is born, Zacharias himself is filled with the Spirit and prophesies. Then Gabriel appears again to Mary. And he tells Mary not just that her son will be endowed with the Spirit, but that she herself will be the site of the Spirit's overshadowing. The Spirit will overshadow you so that the one conceived in you is the Holy One of God. And when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit and prophesies. Mary and Joseph go into the temple, and there in the temple is an old man named Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's been told that he will not die until he sees the Christ, and the Spirit of God is upon him, and he prophesies. Jesus' entire ministry is ministry in the Spirit, He receives the Spirit at his baptism. And from that moment on, the Spirit impels him and directs him everywhere he goes. Immediately after his baptism, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil and overcomes the devil in those temptations. Then the Spirit drives him back into the land and drives him up to Galilee, to Nazareth, where he preaches in the synagogue at Nazareth reading a passage about the Spirit from Isaiah, about the servant who has the Spirit upon him, the sevenfold Spirit of God upon him. And Jesus says, now, in this time, this day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the Spirit-anointed servant of God. Jesus heralds the kingdom by the Spirit. He heals by the Spirit. By the Spirit, he casts out demons. By the finger of God, who is the Spirit, he raises the dead. And then, after the Spirit has accompanied Jesus everywhere he's gone, empowered Jesus in everything he's done, now that Spirit, imprinted with the life and work of Jesus, that Spirit comes to the disciples so that he can imprint the life and ministry and work of, of Jesus onto the apostles so they can replicate what Jesus has done and continue the ministry that he was given in the same spirit. When the spirit comes at Pentecost, they speak in tongues as do the Samaritans, as do the Gentiles in Cornelius' home, as do the disciples of John in Ephesus. The spirit gives them speech so they can proclaim to this diverse crowd at the Feast of Pentecost the wonderful works of God. The Spirit opens Peter's mouth so that he speaks boldly before the Sanhedrin. The Spirit enables the apostles to replicate the miracles of Jesus, to do what Jesus did, and sometimes to do more than Jesus did. They preach in the Spirit. They heal in the Spirit. They cast out demons in the Spirit. They raise the dead in the Spirit. They die in the Spirit. Stephen, filled with the Spirit, contends with the Jews and overcomes the Jews. They can't contend with the Spirit that is in him. And he dies filled with the Spirit. And as soon as Stephen dies, the Spirit is unleashed beyond Jerusalem. And the Spirit begins to spread. And the Spirit begins to impel not just the apostles, Not just Jesus, but deacons and servants and disciples of all kinds. The Spirit tells Philip to go and join a chariot. And there he finds an Ethiopian eunuch. And he proclaims the gospel to him. Then the Spirit snatches him up. He disappears. And he goes to another place. The Spirit chooses and sends Paul and Barnabas out on the mission. And as they go, the joy of the Spirit spreads. The Council of Jerusalem's decision concerning the inclusion of Gentiles in the church is made by the the elders and the Spirit. It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit, they say, that these should be the rules for the inclusion of Gentiles. The Spirit drives Paul to Jerusalem where he's arrested. He knows he's going to be arrested because the Spirit has told him he's going to be arrested. And the book of Acts ends with Paul quoting what the Holy Spirit said to the Jews in the days of Isaiah about the hardness of Israel's heart. The Spirit blows where he wills. And sometimes he outpaces the apostles. The Spirit goes to Samaria and falls on Samaritans before the apostles are quite ready for that to happen. The Spirit stops Paul from continuing in Asia and impels him instead to go over to Macedonia and begin a ministry in Greece. In his epistles, Paul tells us to keep in step with the Spirit. And sometimes I think we have the image that we're taking a leisurely stroll along with the Spirit. And he's got long strides because he's the Spirit's. And we have to trot a little bit to keep up with him. In the book of Acts, the image is often different. It's not just walking alongside the Spirit, but the Spirit rushing ahead. And the apostles and all the Christians, all the disciples, rushing, sprinting to catch up with the Spirit works that always exceeds what they're trying to do. The Spirit is everywhere doing everything. As much as Jesus is the hero of the gospel, As much as Acts is about what Jesus himself continues to do and teach, the Spirit is just as much, just as much, the hero of the gospel as the incarnate Son. He's just as much the one who's doing and teaching and continuing the work of Jesus in the book of Acts. The Spirit's advent of Pentecost determines what the gospel is all about. It determines how the the mission of the church is going to be fulfilled. The Spirit's coming, as much as the coming of Jesus, the Spirit's coming fulfills all the types and shadows and promises of the Old Testament. Paul says that in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. And Paul could just as easily have written, in the Spirit, which is the Spirit of Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Everything we're told at the beginning of Acts 2 tells us in some way that the coming of the Spirit fulfills Old Testament types and shadows. The Spirit comes at Pentecost. It's Pentecost. Well, Pentecost is already a feast of the Jews. It's a harvest festival when the Jews celebrated the incoming of the first fruits of the harvest. And now the disciples receive the first fruits of the Spirit, the down payment of the Spirit. And the Spirit, through their preaching, gathers together the first fruits of a great harvest of nations. Pentecost comes to its fullness. Pentecost is a third month feast in Israel's calendar. And in the third month, after the Passover and after the Exodus, Israel arrived at Sinai. And so Pentecost celebrates the gathering of Israel, the assembly of God at Sinai, and the giving of the law at Sinai. And now Pentecost has fully come with the advent of the Spirit. And you again have Jews from all corners of the world, Jews and proselytes from every nation under heaven, gathered together at this new Sinai in Jerusalem. And there, at that new Sinai, They don't receive, they don't receive tablets of stone written by the finger of God. They receive the Spirit who writes on tablets of the human heart. Who writes God's law on hearts so that it can be obeyed. Pentecost comes into its own. The Spirit comes in a rushing, mighty wind. The wind that swept over and hovered over the formless void, the waters of the original creation. That spirit, the spirit of creation, comes. The spirit who hovered again and blew again over the waters after the flood, who reformed the earth from the waters, a new world. That spirit comes at Pentecost. That spirit comes to begin reforming the world, reshaping the world, making a new creation. That's what the gospel's about. That's what the church's mission is about because it's determined by the gift of the Spirit. The noise of the wind fills the house where they were sitting. Just as the glory cloud of God descended from Sinai and filled the most holy place, the house of God that Israel had built at the foot of Sinai. Just as the glory of the Lord, the glory spirit of the Lord, filled the holy place, the most holy place of the temple. So now, the spirit descends again. The glory descends again into the house where they're sitting and fills the house. This house has become the new sacred place. But it's more than that. The difference is more radical. Because the spirit doesn't fill a house. The Spirit fills disciples. The Spirit fills a a group of disciples so that they become the living temple of God in the world. When the glory came on the tabernacle, not even Moses built the tabernacle, who had been up in the cloud. He'd been on top of Sinai. He's been in the cloud. He'd seen the glory of God. When the glory comes on the tabernacle, not even Moses can stay there. But when the Spirit comes at Pentecost and the rushing glory of God fills the house where they're sitting and fills the disciples, they stay. In the presence of the glory, something's happened to the Spirit or something's happened to the disciples. So they can stand in the presence of the glory and look the glory in the face and be transformed into the image of that glory from glory to glory. This is a new temple. An unprecedented temple. A temple built of human beings. A temple not built by hands. And there's another novelty. When the Lord filled the most holy place and took his throne above the cherubim on the ark, he next flashed out and burst out with fire. And the fire came out of the tabernacle and lit the altar and consumed the sacrificial animal on the altar. Enthronement and then sacrifice. Enthronement and then fire. And so Jesus, who ascends into heaven not just as a great high priest, but ascends into heaven as Yahweh incarnate, takes his throne in heaven, and fifty days, forty ten days, sorry, ten days after he's taken his throne in heaven. He bursts out with fire. There's no altar here. There's no sacrificial animal. But something's burning. It's the disciples. They're the living altar as they are the living temple. And by the Spirit, they're consecrated and lit to live lives of living sacrifice. Burning with the fire of the Spirit. When the Spirit comes, the disciples begin, the apostles begin to speak in tongues so that all who hear understand what they're saying, no matter what language they know. And here again, we have a fulfillment of an Old Testament type or picture, a reversal of the great post, a post-flood tragedy of the world. The great post-flood tragedy is the Tower of Babel, where there's a confusion of tongues, that divides the nations. And in Genesis 10 and 11, we have the nations are listed in Genesis 10. They're all the descendants of Noah. And then Genesis 11 is the story of Babel, and they're dispersed. All those nations that descended from Noah and Noah's sons are now dispersed, and they're in conflict. They can't communicate with one another. Pentecost reverses that. In fact, we have a textual reversal in Acts 2. Genesis 10, table of nations. Genesis 11, a confusion of tongues at Babel. In Acts 2, the confusion of tongues comes first and then a small table of nations. And that textual reversal is a sign of the large real reversal. Babel is being overcome. The divided nations are being brought back together being able to communicate with with one another in the Spirit. And by the end of the day, these people from every tribe and tongue, from every nation under heaven are sitting down and they're enjoying a meal together. The diversity of the nations is not destroyed, but all the nations are brought back in harmony. In Luke's Gospel and in Acts, the Spirit is everywhere doing everything. He's the hero but we, Reformed Protestants, are reticent sometimes to talk about the Spirit. We've been spooked into silence by the excesses of the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement. We don't live with the sense that the Spirit is guiding and moving and alive. And sometimes we live with an implicit understanding or an implicit belief at some point the spirit just stopped acting in the world some point along things started just running on their own we become functional naturalists that is we believe everything happens because of natural causation not because of the role not because of the work of the spirit obviously that's an error and in responding to the charismatic and pentecostal movements i think what we want to do is not to to use terms from improvisational acting not to block them so much as over accept them yeah the spirit is everywhere doing everything even more than some charismatics and pentecostals think the spirit is active in places that doesn't that don't fit with the Pentecostal model. What do I mean? Some Pentecostals, some Charismatics, of course, have adopted a prosperity gospel. God wants you to be rich. God wants to give you success in everything. And wherever a Christian is being successful, wherever a Christian is triumphing, there is the Spirit. We can say that, sure. Sure. The Spirit gives gifts of prosperity. The Spirit is the source of every victory that we gain. But the apostles knew that the Spirit was the source of everything. Every open door was opened by the Spirit, and every closed door was closed by the Spirit. When 3,000 are baptized in one day, there's the Spirit at work. When Paul can't get into Asia, there's the spirit at work again. When they're strong, when they're successful, the spirit is at work. When they're weak and beleaguered and persecuted and imprisoned, that also is the work of the spirit. We're more than conquerors in Christ. We're more than conquerors in the spirit. But also in the spirit, we suffer for Jesus' sake. Think about it this way. When the spirit invades the world, he starts a war. He's the spirit of the judges, after all. He's the spirit that inspired all the berserkers in the book of Judges. That spirit is coming on the apostles. He's starting a war. And if you've received the spirit, then there's a war going on in you. And that war, that conflict between your flesh and the Holy Spirit that's in you, is not a sign of the absence of the Spirit, if the Spirit weren't there, there would be no conflict. You'd happily live a life according to the flesh, doing the works of the flesh. The reason why you're in tension, the reason why you are, seem defeated, the reason why you're in conflict is because the Spirit's there. The battle is a sign of the Spirit's work. We want to remember, over against the prosperity gospel, The Spirit not only gives prosperity, but the Spirit also drives us into the wilderness as it drove Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross in the audacity of the Spirit. Inflamed and inspired by the Spirit, He does things that He knows create a collision with the Jewish leaders and will lead to His arrest And his death. And that's the Spirit's work. Sometimes he drives us into wildernesses. And if we want to keep up with the Spirit, sometimes we're going to end up on a cross, which doesn't look much like prosperity, but it is victory. Some charismatics have a lust for spectacle, a lust for display. What makes the Spirit evident is speaking in tongues and prophecy and all kinds of miracles, healings, people being raised from the dead. Yeah, that's all the Spirit's work. And that's how the Spirit, that's how Pentecost starts, with a rushing mighty wind and a clamor of tongues and all these spectacular things going on. But look at the end of Acts 2. What's happening at the end of Pentecost? What's happening the next day? Well, you have believers who are baptized now. They've received the Spirit. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to the breaking of bread. They're devoted to the communion. They're devoted to the prayers. the Spirit leave in the meantime? Or is that quiet, prosaic life of the church. Is that also the work of the Spirit? And of course, the the message of Acts is, yes, of course, that's also the work of the Spirit. That communion is a work of the Spirit of communion. Our communion together this morning, we're gathered by the Spirit, we sing in the Spirit. I trust that I'm preaching to you in the Spirit. You're receiving it in the Spirit. In a few moments we'll be at the Lord's table receiving the body and blood of Christ by the Spirit. What we're doing right now, as normal and ordinary as it might look, is the Spirit's work. Of course the Spirit's at work in spectacular moments. The Spirit's also at work whenever you see a group of believers devoting themselves to the teaching of Scripture, fellowshipping together, around a table, devoting themselves to prayer. The Spirit is the Spirit of tongues, the Spirit of prophecy, the Spirit of healing. He's also the Spirit of ordinary, everyday Christian communion. That, too, is the Spirit's work. In a few minutes, we're going to confess, as we do every Sunday, that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. We believe that that Spirit who is with the Father and the Son, who is worshipped with the Father and the Son, who is God, that Spirit came at Pentecost. And that Spirit fills us together, as the body of Christ. And that Spirit fills every one of you. God lives in you. If you confess Jesus as the Christ, you can only do that by the Spirit. The Spirit of God, who is God Himself, lives in you. The Spirit who swept over the waters of creation. The spirit who was enthroned above the cherubim in the tabernacle and the temple. The spirit whose breath gave life to Adam. The spirit who clothed the judges for battle. The spirit in whom we live and move and have our being. The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. The spirit who groans over the creation, hoping for, expecting, yearning for the revelation of the sons of God. That spirit... Lives in you. The love by which the God of love is love. That love. Has been poured out in your hearts. The life by which the living God lives. Lives in you. Every single one of you. Is a divine human. Living a kind of double life. You're not Jesus. You're not an incarnation of the Son of God. But you are a human being inhabited by the Spirit of God. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Every morning when you look in the mirror, that's what you're looking at. Might look like a dilapidated temple. A sagging temple. A temple in a certain degree of ruin. But it is, you are a temple of the living God. And everyone around you, your wife, your husband, your friends, your children, your parents, everyone around you is a temple of the living God. <laughs> we have, uh, we've, we've become so used to who we are. I mean, you should be in awe of yourself. You're a temple of God. There should be awe awe of everybody around you. And that way, Pentecost fulfills the human destiny. God created man to glorify man and to bring him to his throne. As Irenaeus, the early church father, put it God created man so that man might become God. God, uh, God uh came to man, God became man in the incarnation so that man might become God. And we need to insert the Spirit in there. The Son became flesh by the Spirit. So that by the Spirit, we who are in the flesh might manifest the glory of the image of God. We want to be a little more tame than Irenaeus. We can put it that way. That's what he means when he says you're going to be, you're, you are become God. The Son took flesh by the Spirit. And that same Spirit has been inhabiting the church since the day of Pentecost so that Christ can take form in your flesh, my flesh, our flesh. By the Spirit, Mary conceived the Son of God in her womb. And that same Spirit is at work in the church until Christ is formed in us and among us. And we labor in the Spirit until that's evident, until the glory of Christ shines through us all, until we reach the full stature of the body of Christ. That's the Spirit's work. The Spirit of God lives in you so that you can be brought to your destiny as a human being, as a creature of God, so that we together can be brought to our created destiny as the body of Christ. The flesh of the Son of God, still here in the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we praise you for this great gift. You have given yourself to us so that we can become dwelling places of the Spirit. We pray, O God, that we would feel the full weight of that mystery and that we would know that even in our flesh, we're living the life of the Spirit. Until our flesh is transformed, we receive spiritual bodies and the glory of the Spirit shines through us fully. We pray that you enable us to walk in the Spirit to live in the Spirit, to keep step with the Spirit, to remember the Spirit who dwells in us and live in that faith that you have made us your dwelling place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.